1: You
2: know um, right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, when, when it comes to journalism, our guest is as good as it gets.
3: Yeah, he is as good as it gets. I mean, the uh, the extensive list of accomplishments and things that he's done in his career is absolutely tremendous. Uh, another Syracuse alumni on the show. So uh, we've had our experience interviewing Syracuse alums. So uh, great broadcasting school. Another great alum from there. Uh, longtime columnist for the NFL. Uh, he's been working at the New York Daily News. Uh, he got his break and started at the Dallas Morning News. Uh, he is an NFL Hall of Fame voter. He was an insider for Inside the, HBO, uh, Inside the NFL on HBL from 1989 to 2001. An original panelist for Yes Networks This Week in Football. Uh, you might have seen his work published uh, in places elsewhere, including The Athletic and Sports Illustrated, co-author of multiple books, including New York Times bestseller, Brady vs. Manning. Uh, and we're very, very excited to have him on, like I said, an extensive list of accomplishments. Gary Myers. Gary, welcome to the show. Nice to see you. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great, guys. How are you?
2: We're doing well. Happy happy to have you on here. And we'll, we'll get right into it. So when when did you make the decision that you said to yourself, maybe I could pursue a career here in journalism and did you initially think maybe I'll just get into journalism or is it always I want to do sports journalism?
1: Well, I, I mean, I went to Syracuse, as, uh, as you guys mentioned, um, to the Newhouse School. So it was always my intention, you know, coming out of high school uh, when I was picking a college that I wanted to get involved in. A I, I want to go to school with a good journalism program and Syracuse back then and and even today is the best you know, journalism school, you know, if not in the country, then certainly in the Northeast and um, is known more extensively for the broadcasters that have come out of there. And, you know, I ventured over into that part of it a little bit with HBO and the yes network, but primarily, you know, my career is centered around around writing for the Dallas morning news and the daily news, and then um, the books that I've written. But I, I knew pretty, pretty early on when I, Um, came to the conclusion that I wasn't going to be, uh, the shortstop for the Mets that, um, (laughs) and I, you know, I, I love to write and I love sports. So that was obviously the best way to combine the two.
2: absolutely. So right out of college, you're pretty fortunate. You start working right away, get hooked up with the Associated Press. How did that opportunity come about for you right out of school?
1: Yeah. I mean, I got lucky, um, if you can call working from seven at night till three in the morning, lucky. Uh, one of the guys that I worked with at the Daily Orange at Syracuse had gotten the job the year before at the AP and called me like a week before graduation, said they had an opening to take baseball box scores and uh, baseball stories over the phone from the different correspondents and stringers around the country. And you know, would I be interested in doing that? There might be a little bit of writing involved. so. Um, I took that, I stayed at school about an extra week after graduation to hang out with my buddies and then uh, I've been, you know, working ever since and, you know, one thing led to another at the AP and then, you know, to the Dallas Morning News and and the Daily News, but I I started about as far at the bottom in this business as you could um, only because, you know, the hours were horrific and I I was really just a a clerk in, in the Associated Press Office, but um, you know, not having to go to a small town and, and cover high schools, uh, I always thought was a bonus, so, you know, starting off at a place as prestigious as the Associated Press, you know, I, I think worked to my advantage. Um, it just took some time.
3: So for uh, our listeners out there, that's 7 PM to 3 AM shift, uh, for the most part you can still kind of consider it the graveyard shift it's one of those shifts where you start out and you don't really want to do it that's um, what you work, joe You're, you work that shift right now in your job so <laughs> yeah well i mean i i work uh games during the night you know so i i did media management for mlb.com i still do media management for nhl.com um So my my routine is doing night stuff. So obviously when you do night stuff and you do West Coast stuff, West Coast games don't start till 10 o'clock and they don't know know. 31 o'clock. So (laughs) uh, I I definitely I feel I feel you there. But uh, you went to the Dallas Morning News uh, and I believe you started there in 1978 and uh, a lot of great things going on, including those those great Cowboys team. So uh, could you just touch on your time there at the Dallas Morning News and uh, how did that transition come about for you?
1: Yeah, it was actually 1981 that I went to, um, I went to the morning news. So in '78, in, in the AP moved me over to cover New Jersey. I was a New Jersey sports editor and the Giants had uh, you know, moved over uh, a couple of years earlier and the Nets were playing in uh, Piscataway, I think, at, at Rutgers uh, at the time and the Cosmos soccer team, believe it or not, it's just a huge deal they were selling out giant stadium every game, 78,000 people. And so that was a really big deal. And I got to cover that. So I, I, I parlayed that into uh, a job at the, at the daily news where I stayed for about a year and had this great offer to go to Dallas and cover the Cowboys. And, um, that was really, if there's a turning point, if my career has been good enough to have a turning point and I'm always very humble about this, but, um, If there was a turning point, it was going to Dallas and, and uh, covering the most important beat, not only in the sports section, but on the entire paper, Uh, unless you've lived in Dallas, you can't possibly comprehend what a big deal the Cowboys are in that city. So to go down there with the opportunity to, to cover them, and I I stayed for seven and a half years, I covered the Cowboys uh, as a beat for about three or four years, and then I transitioned over to writing NFL columns, but it was a great experience. I loved living in Dallas. Uh, The Morning News at that point was involved in this huge newspaper war with the Dallas Times-Herald and spending money like it was growing on trees, basically. You know, we traveled all over the place. We'd send five people on the road to a Cowboys game, have seven people at Cowboy home games. It was just it was a really amazing time to be in Dallas um, be, because those newspapers each had a lot of money and they were going head to head and they weren't afraid to spend the money. And then in 89, I had a chance. Uh, actually 1985, I had a chance. I had job offers both from the daily news to come back and be their NFL columnist or to go to Newsday wow. and cover the Giants. But um, I was really enjoying myself in Dallas. I had a great job. I had a lot of friends. Uh, the paper was great. So I stayed. And then in 1989, the Daily News came back to me and offered me the columnist job again. And uh, I was getting married and my fiance lived in New York and she didn't want to move to Dallas. And um, so it all kind of fit into place. And at the same time, HBO offered me the job to be their insider on Inside the NFL. So um, I really, at that point in my life, I wanted to move back to New York. Interestingly, guys, the... I can came up with this plan before I got the job offer from the Daily News that the morning news I had gone in to speak to the sports editor. His name was Dave Smith. You know, one of the real giants in the business. And I, I laid out a plan to let me be the New York correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. Again, because we were covering everything in those days, and I showed him how I can save them money. You know, if if the Mavericks had a one-game road trip to New York. He wouldn't have to send a Mavericks writer. I can just do that. Uh, I'd still be the NFL columnist and, and travel out of New York instead of Dallas. I wasn't writing a lot of Cowboy stuff at that point because we had our own team of writers covering the Cowboys. So I we had actually already agreed that I was going to move back to New York and be their East Coast correspondent. And then the Daily News called me uh, pretty much at the last minute and offered me that job. And one of the hardest things I ever had to do was go in to the office of the sports editor at the morning news, who had really accommodated me because he knew I wanted to get married. He knew I wanted to live in New York. And I was there to make all these plans to move back based on the morning news being so cooperative with me. And at the last minute, when the daily news said, hey, this job is open again that we offered you four years ago, would you be interested this time? It just made more sense to me to live and work in the same city. so I, I had to go in and tell the sports editor of the, of the morning news, you know, I really appreciate everything. It's been great. But this is really going to be better for my life and my career. And, and he understood.
2: So I guess you made a lasting impression in your, your year on the, as the Giants beat writer in the Daily News. Was the sports editor the same person uh, when you were there in, in July of 1980, when you started there, when when you came back They, they remembered you. Is that how they got in contact with you?
1: Well, actually, um, a long time had passed. I mean, by the time I left the the Daily News in, in the summer of 81 until I came back in, uh, in May of 89, all the management people were gone. You know, the sports editor, the assistant sports editor, the executive editor of the paper, the managing editor of the paper. There was really nobody left from my time there. I mean, there were some writers that were still there, but the sports editor was Vic Siegel. I don't know if you guys remember him, uh, who I had a relationship with just because he was an old time New York sports writer. And I always used to see him around and uh, they had uh, he had been promoted to sports editor and uh, he, he was the one in eighty five who offered me the job that I turned down. Uh, and then he came back to me four years later. So I was really fortunate that I had a good relationship with him because you usually don't get two chances at the same job. Um, but I I will say this, and I've told everybody this, the best job I ever had was at the Morning News covering the Cowboys. It was just, it was spectacular. It was a great experience working for a great paper with great editors. Um, We had some tremendous, just to give you an example, uh, you know, Tim Kirkjian, who works for ESPN, was a Rangers writer. Uh, Mitch Lawrence, who later followed me to, to New York was our Mavericks writer. Gene Wojciechowski, who works for ESPN, um, was our feature writer. Dan Barrero, who was a a great writer, uh, is now like the number one radio host in Minneapolis. He had gone to the Star Tribune from the Morning News to be a columnist and did that for a lot of years. And then he got a radio show and is now, you know, the the number one guy in Minneapolis. Barry Horn was a great feature writer, Mark Blouch. I mean, we really, really had a tremendous staff in Dallas, and because most of the people that worked there were from, not from Dallas, we we really we really bonded because none of us really had family there, so it, it was became like a fraternity, um, which is an atmosphere that I had never sta- uh, uh, experienced prior to that. Or since then, it was just a really unique experience in Dallas.
3: So Nick and I have had a lot of people on this show, a lot of people from Newsday, a lot of people from the Star Ledger. uh, And as you in the industry can, you know, a lot of people now who work all across the country made their start there. So it's funny you mention all those great people that you worked with in Dallas. I mean, I'll say all star team, but in your case, a bunch of pro bowlers. The first guy you mentioned, Tim Kurgin, is a really good friend of our show, and he was the first person for us who came on twice. So he he's always going to have a special place in our heart. But I mean, that's absolutely tremendous. I mean, like the, the talent down there you worked with, um, and that you that you got to to share experiences with. I mean, those experiences I don't think they come around too often anymore.
1: Joe, I'm going to tell you this, and yeah, I'll, I'm going to tell you this great story only if you guys promise me one thing. Next time you have Tim Kirkton on, you have to ask him about this story, okay?
2: Absolutely.
3: Absolutely.
1: Okay. So this is uh I think it was it was the end of the 81 season. It might have been 82, I, I can't quite remember, but Timmy was covering SMU. So maybe it was 81 because he got to onto the baseball beat pretty fast. And even today he still looks like he's about 25 years old. Yes. <laughs> but, but back then he looked like he was about 15 and Ron Meyer was the coach of SMU and he was about to take the job as the Patriots coach. He was being hired by new England and Tim was covering SMU, but he hadn't been doing it that long. So he didn't really have a, a relationship with Ron Meyer yet. And again, remember, he looks like he's 12 years old at this point. Timmy's <laughs> got that squeaky voice. So he sounds like he's 15, you know? Hi. So the sports editor says, Tim, I want you to go to Ron Meyer's house and go knock on the door and just flat out ask him, are you taking the job with the Patriots? So Tim, you know, and that's a tough thing to do, right? Especially if the coach didn't really know him at that point. So he goes, he knocks on the door.
0: Don't mind me, just sneaking out to go to Kohl's. The home deals right now, they're too good to pass up. Like up to 40% off Cuddle That's Bedding, up to 50% off the cutest fall decor, and up to 25% off Ninja Kitchen appliances. How can I resist? You can even get 15% off or 15, 20, or 30% off with a Kohl's card. So, yeah, I'm going all in for fall, and I can't even wait. Select styles. Offers end October 17th. Some exclusions apply. See store Coles account for details.
1: Meyer opens the front door. He says, Coach, Tim Kirchin from the Dallas Morning News. Ron Meyer turns around, yells to, yells to his wife, honey, did we pay the newspaper guy yet this week? <laughs> uh, he he thought tim was you know his newspaper delivery guy and trust me he looked like one but he was extremely talented and very funny guy as you as i'm sure you've experienced with him
3: yeah but, he's uh, told us a lot of great stories too
1: oh he's he's, he's tremendous and um, but that that is a definitely a true story we we never let him forget it I haven't seen Tim in, you know, 15, maybe 20 years now, but our desks used to be right next to each other uh, at the morning news. And um, he didn't stay as long as I did. I think he went to to maybe Baltimore next and then Boston or the other way around. And then he was at SI for a while and he's done great at ESPN. Um, And he's such a good guy.
2: Yeah. No, no doubt about that. One one of the best in the business. What, what was the biggest difference for, for you, uh, not necessarily the beat wise, but in going to a Giants training camp or covering a Giants game versus Cowboys training camp and Cowboys games?
1: Well, Nick, first of all, the, the, the Cowboys held training camp in, in Thousand Oaks, California, which is about 50 miles northwest of L.A. So. And that's when camp was like six weeks right. long.
2: Two a days, everything. Yeah.
1: I mean, so we didn't leave in the middle of July. First couple of years, I actually stayed in the dorms where the team stays. Not in the same dorm, but dorms on campus, which was just a horrific experience. <laughs> Being back in a college dorm was terrible. No
2: air conditioning, yeah, terrible no. food. Ugh.
1: Well, it was. Well, actually, the food wasn't that bad because it was the same food they were serving it to the players.
2: Ah, so they're catering. Uh, yeah. it,
1: was, it was a step up from... You know, regular college food, but um, staying in the dorms just brought back memories of being 18 years old. You know? <laughs> um, and then, you know, of course, the, the, the war of the two days. And then because we were in California and on Pacific time and Dallas is on Central time, you know, I would wake up every day for practice and I was already two hours, you know, I'd already lost two hours in the day, you um, Practice wouldn't stall till nine o'clock in the morning. So that was like 11 o'clock in the morning in Dallas. Now, these were this was way before the days of the internet. Um, but because of the time difference, I'd have to be done writing for the first edition by say 5, 5.30 California time. And the second practice wouldn't be over till around then. So it would mean I have to get most of my work done between practices, which was about three hours. So the day was really condensed. Uh, as far as writing time was concerned, you know, we did all our interviews in the cafeteria at lunchtime, but, um, just being exposed to Tom Landry all those years was, was great. I mean, I, I really, really liked him a lot. He wasn't, uh, he was different than I had anticipated based on his reputation. He was very friendly and open and honest. And I can't say he was the warmest guy I've ever met, but he was always very respectful and, um, And helpful. And then the difference would, and on the game day, the difference really was, like I mentioned before, how many play, how many writers we had at games. So I'd be writing the game story and I would just touch on a little bit of everything because we usually had a sidebar on every big event, every big play from the game. And we'd have two columnists at every game. So there was so much in the paper that um, it, it really made my job relatively easy or easier than coming back to new york and we only have you know two maybe three people at a home game and definitely no more than two people at a road game so there was a lot more writing to do to make sure every aspect of the game was covered train camp was easier for me for the most part because um it was in town it was in new jersey i live in westchester but it was in New Jersey, so I, you know, there wasn't a point. It was easy enough to drive back and forth every day. When the Giants went to Albany, you know, sometimes I'd go up and stay two, three days in a row because you know, it was too hard to drive back and then go back again the next day. The Jets were in Hempstead, which was an easy drive for me. But um, when you get right down to it, 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 both Dallas and New York, it's football. And you're writing about football players and coaches winners, winning and losing, players trying to make a team, players getting cut. Uh, players with really interesting family life backgrounds—it's all pretty much the same. Uh, but what makes it really—the the main thing that's different is the market, where a story that would be a front-page headline in the Dallas Morning News sports section about the com- about the competition for the left tackle starting job would get buried in the in the daily news because there's just so much else going on. So, um, yeah, I would say that's the biggest difference between the two jobs is just, I knew that everything I wrote in Dallas was really important because I was writing about the most important beat on the entire paper or New York, the Giants, you know, summertime would blend in with the Jets and, the, and obviously the Yankees and the Mets. And, and there's always, there's always something going on in New York sports that unless you have a really big football story and training camp, uh, you're probably not going to make the back page.
3: So simultaneously, as you come back to New York, you start doing uh, inside the NFL with HBO and you become the insider. Now I'm going to, I'm going to span a a long time here because I'm going to loop in uh, your time also with the yes network. And I'm going to loop in your time at SNY. Now, uh,
1: that was just a few months though. So yeah,
3: but well, it's the same concept. So <laughs> one of the best shows, uh,
2: and, uh, you know, local, local te- regional sports. I mean, that was a great show daily news live. So no,
1: amazing. people was, it was,
3: it was. was terrific. But so we're, we're going to span here a couple of decades. Uh, television has certainly changed, but at the time you had only known mostly print, right? You were a writer, you were a columnist. Did you have any reservations at the time? about transitioning uh, and, and tweaking what you were doing uh, to make it for television. Um, so was, was there any nerves there? Because a, a lot of people don't necessarily do the whole, you know, print to TV thing really well. And now uh, we live in a, a day and age where Nick and I, we need, we need to be able to do everything else. So right. uh, everything kind of blends into each other, which wasn't necessarily the case at the time. So uh, how was that for you?
1: Joe, you know, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, when I was first approached by um, HBO to, to do this, um, if, if you remember, it was Will McDonough, who was a, a football insider on uh, NBC, then CBS, or maybe it was CBS and NBC, and he was really the only one doing it. And then uh, Gordon Forbes, who had worked for USA Today, uh He worked for Inside the NFL in 1988, and then after the season, they decided to make a change, and they asked me if I was interested. I had done a guest appearance on that show uh, about the Cowboys. Uh, That's when um, Cowboys were 3-13, and and they were about to fire uh, Tom Landry, although we didn't know it at that time. They had me come on, and we talked about the Cowboys, and they were impressed with me, and then asked me if I was interested in doing it you know, for the entire season. Um, So other than kind of studying Will McDonough a little bit and how he did it, there was really not a lot for me to go on on how a newspaper guy should transition to being on TV. Now, again, this was simultaneous to me taking the job at the Daily News. So I wouldn't have been foolish enough to just say, "Okay, I'm just going to take a TV job here because I had no idea, you know, how I was going to do. I mean, it is completely different. And uh, it wasn't the easiest transition to learn how to do television. I mean, there's so much you have to concentrate on and and realize, you know, the camera's always on you. So you have to, now we taped the show. So if I screwed up, I got to do it again, but you don't want to take advantage of that too often. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the key thing, I mean, I had two and a half minutes to discuss four stories on Inside the NFL and Lenny Dawson, who was just wonderful to me, and was the easiest guy to work with, which set me up. But, you know, Lenny is like this country folk guy and his questions would take forever. And so my two and a half (laughs) minutes that I got to talk, actually got down to like a minute and a half because Lenny took up the other minute asking the questions. But I learned to talk in headlines, which is the key to television. You know, newspaper columns are 800 words. When you're on TV, you don't have the equivalent of that time It it takes to read 800 words. You know, you got to do it in in 30 seconds. So uh, I really learned how to edit myself and to talk in headlines and just give um, the important part of the story without necessarily having the time to give every bit of background that I was accustomed to doing in the newspaper. So um, I think I got good at it after a while. It wasn't an immediate thing and they were very patient with me, but I was good enough, I guess, that I kept that job you know, for 13 years, which in television is just an eternity. Right.
2: Yeah, nobody lasts, lasts that long on one show on TV anymore. And you mentioned yeah, you do have to talk in headlines with television. Now, you've done some radio work. That's the complete opposite, especially yeah. dealing with callers. Uh, we both really enjoyed uh, when you and Jody Mack are doing that Saturday show on WFN. But what was your thoughts when you were approached to do, to do some sort of radio work?
1: You know, I'll tell you this. Um, radio is probably my favorite thing to do um, those shows that I was doing, hopefully we'll get to do them again this year. We didn't last year because of the pandemic, right. But, um, I, I just find radio uh, it's, it gives you the chance to really express your opinions in, in what I would consider a very relaxed atmosphere. Um, I enjoy talking to the callers, um, and Jody Mack, who I did most of the shows with, I did some with Eddie Coleman. Both of them are just so, such pros and so good at, at they were so good at setting me up and deferring to me on, on some things. Um, I really enjoy doing radio and I hope to do more of it, like I said. Um, again, completely different than TV because other than, in radio, you, you wanna be able to tell your stories and, and engage the listener and be entertaining at the same time in in TV i mean you try to be entertaining but you know the time constraints are, are much different
2: absolutely and again everything every medium everybody would think oh well it's all the same you're all you're just talking about sports but it's very different what what was your approach here when when you came to writing your books versus writing columns obviously it's much more in depth more yeah. research but, so what was your process like
1: um I'm impressed by the questions. I mean, you guys are <laughs> did some research here. Um, I have a really good friend that I work with at the Daily News. His name is Wayne Coffey, and he's written, you know, several books. And before I wrote my first book, his advice to me was, "Let it breathe." And what he meant by that is, we're so accustomed in the newspaper business to kind of getting, unless you're writing like a, a fifteen hundred word feature that Dalen used to to have the end zone at the back of the Sunday sports section when you'd get to write a little bit longer. But for the most part, you don't have that uh, opportunity in newspapers. You you have to just kind of tell the story quickly because of of the space. Um, So Wayne's advice to me was you're writing an 80,000 word book. Let it breathe. You don't have to get beginning, middle and the end all in the first thousand words. You know, you can kind of go off and tell, get on a tangent and tell a story, uh, making it flow. And again, you don't have to tell the whole story in one chapter. You got eight or 10 chapters. So that that was a tough transition too, you know, um, going from being conditioned all those years to telling the story quickly to you don't want to tell the story quickly because you're writing a book, you know, and you can't, you know, you can't get 80,000 words if you get a rush through everything. So letting it breathe was a great ad, a bit of advice to me.
3: Yeah, it, it, it's kind of similar. Uh, so when you look at the structure of television, usually you're trying to do stuff within a half hour to an hour. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, you know, on those, those shows that you worked on, Uh, You were a panelist or you're an accessory to the show. There are usually other writers and other people uh, kind of in your similar position trying to get your spot in. Whereas if you do radio, uh, you need to figure out a way to fill time for two hours, for three hours, four hours. And, you know, hopefully you got to work with some great people like Nick mentioned before. uh, Kind of very similar process to writing the books where uh, basically you're you're just looking to. to...
0: COVID-19 is still around, but that doesn't mean the Army ROTC programs are not there for you. Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at goarmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit goarmy.com slash moneyforcollege.
3: take up as much space as you possibly can. So uh, there's really less pressure on you. Now, you've written multiple books. Uh, I want to ask, do you favor any book in particular over another? Um, I don't know if you're going to answer that, but uh, the follow-up here, the question would be, uh, what were some of your favorite uh, stories or interviews that you did or investigative work uh, during the process of writing your books,
1: well, I I, I, re- I enjoyed writing all of them. I'm actually finishing up book number six, which unfortunately I can't. The publisher doesn't want me to start uh, promoting it yet, so I have to keep it a secret for another couple of weeks. But um, my most successful book is my most is my favorite because it was the most successful, and that was my Brady versus Manning book, which. You yeah, have just
3: right
1: great, behind you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as actually, my son blew up the covers of, of those two books, and I framed them. Um, hopefully, I can do it with all the books, uh, doing it one at a time. But um, the Brady versus Manning book—it was a great thrill when it made the Times bestseller list. I mean, that's the goal when you when you write a book is to to make that list, and obviously sell a lot of copies. Um, I, I really enjoyed writing the catch, you know, the book that's behind me there, um, because it was, it was one of the, it was probably the, the first really big game that I ever covered, which was the 81 NFC championship game. You guys are way too young to remember this. It was a game with uh, Dwight Clark making that spectacular catch at the back of the end zone. And uh, so revisiting that game, 25 years later in interviewing Montana and Clark, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago, um, and all the great players and coaches that were involved in that game, uh, other than Walsh and Landry, because, again, they, they had passed away as well. But um, that was just, that book was a lot of fun for me to write. Um, the book about uh, my first coach was about quarterbacks and their dads or quarterbacks and their kids, as in the case with Montana and his kids, but mainly about the influence that fathers had on, uh, on their um. Athletic Careers, that book was really personal to me because when my son was in high school, he was a captain of his varsity baseball team and uh, the living and dying with with those games um, is something, was one of the great thrills I've ever had uh, in my life, really. Probably living a little vicariously through him because he was a a much better (laughs) athlete than me. Um, So that book had like a a personal meaning to me um i wrote a book about the cowboys a couple years ago called how about them cowboys i like that and then the other book i wrote was coaching confidential which was a behind the scenes look of the life of of nfl coaches and and how they pretty much torture themselves by working 18 hour days but um the other part of the question was oh about the favorite interviews or um i tell you what it was probably, there's really nothing in second place. When I picked out my favorite one, it was it was driving with Tom Brady from Gillette Stadium to downtown Boston to interview him for my Brady versus Manning book, where um, he is um, excellent at driving and paying attention to questions and paying attention to the road, most importantly. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And an we, hit, we had just enough traffic that I got about an hour in the car with him. And he was great. I could not have done the job I did with that book without Tom's cooperation. I would have been able to write it, but his cooperation really made the book. And Peyton, not, not as cooperative, but good enough. Uh, but that interview with Brady is probably um, the one that stands out of any of your interview I've ever done in my career.
2: So what is it like uh, when I guess the, the publisher comes to you and is like, okay, we got the book coming out. Now we're gonna go full fledged here. You're gonna go on all these shows, all these media outlets to promote the book. Uh, I distinctly remember, you, know, you did an interview for Brady versus Manning with, with Mike Francesa and Twitter was in a frenzy because you're, you're giving out little tidbits about how Parcells maybe he was going to take Brady and then, you know, Manning could have maybe been a jet. Twitter's going crazy. I would assume that helped in a sense to, to, to the sales in New York market, but what is that whole, you know, press junket like for you when you're promoting these books?
1: Yeah, um, well, it's very important. I mean, and I appreciated Mike uh, had me on for my first three books and the hour with him in the studio and he was enjoying it enough that he, he would be waving off the commercials and the 2020 updates. And we just did <laughs> like an hour straight, Yeah, which was a good sign for me because it, it showed how engaged he was. And the thing I learned about Mike is the exposure I got on his show was so valuable. And you can always tell by the, the Amazon rankings. Um, they rank the where you are in terms of how many books are sold. And my number always went, jumped way up after an appearance with Mike. And so his show had a lot of impact. But what I learned about Mike, the, the first one I did was the catch book. So it was the 49ers and the Cowboys. I know, I knew much more about this than he did. I lived it. I covered it. I, I spent a year researching the book, but with Mike and I, I used to do something he and P, Peter King and I used to do his Sunday morning radio show that, NFL Now or whatever you call it. I did it for like seven years. And uh, so I was on every Sunday morning with Mike during the football season. So what I learned about with Mike is you always want to let Mike think that he knows more than you do. Because <laughs> if you don't, then he gets a little defensive and he starts challenging you on things. So even though with this catchbook, I had to know more than him right? I knew more about the game. I knew more about the players. I knew more about the background, but if he wanted to sit there and tell me stories about his interactions that he had with Bill Walsh and Tom Landry, I never looked at it like, ah, Mike's talking too much, you know, which he always did with his guests. You know, he, he basically answered, asked a question and answer it right with me. I was fine with that because he was engaged, which was good for me. And he always had something interesting to say, which then I can bounce off of, but Mike was just different than say, if I was talking to Michael K or just doing out of town shows because, um, because he, not that anybody else isn't knowledgeable, but Mike likes to tell you how knowledgeable he is. But, But I was always fine with that. You know, I didn't, I don't, I didn't have like an ego with that, that I have to prove that I know more than Mike because he was just being very generous with his time. And he was the one that was helping me sell books. So if he wanted to let his audience know that, you know, everything that happened on the play where Montana threw it to Clark, you know, go for it. it, You know, if it it was helping me sell books and it was, and I, I, and the thing is I did enjoy, I always enjoyed going on with them because I knew, you know, how the worst thing is going on with a, a radio host and they say to you, okay, so you wrote the Brady versus Manning book. What's it about? Uh. <laughs> you know, When they haven't read the book that they haven't even read, you know, the press, uh, the, the PR release on it, where you always give some anecdotes to give them some topics to talk to you about. When they just go into, well, yeah, tell me about the book. Well, with Francesa, he'd always say, you know, you had the story about, you know, Belichick and, and Brady You know, this is what I remembered from it. You know, how was it explained to you? I mean, that was, that's always better than someone just throwing you out a generic, like, why'd you write the book? Or, or tell me about the book, you know, that kind of thing. Um, So I thought, you know, Mike was always great, not just with me, but I I thought when he interviewed authors, he always went into it having read the book, which you can, you can tell and, um, and asking good questions. So.
2: Um, yeah. We'll certainly uh, miss that. You won't be on his show for the next book, uh, unfortunately. Yeah.
1: So, who
3: knows? You never know, Mike. <laughs> no, you don't. So uh, you've mentioned through the years, a lot of really great coaches, obviously Parcells and Landry. Uh, you just told us that really great Tom Brady uh, nugget when you were doing the research for the book. Uh, are there any other players or, or coaches or, or even people in the media through the years uh, who have treated you well, uh, been very open uh, with, with information for you to that made your job easier, or that were just really a great interview or a great time in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, sh- sure. In-, in Dallas, I had my group of guys that I became very friendly with um, and were always very helpful to me. Uh, Everson Walls, who later played for the Giants and had that huge tackle of Thurman Thomas in the – Super Bowl 25. He was my go-to guy in the Cowboys locker room. Drew Pearson who just got into the hall of fame was one of my guys. I mean, always had something interesting to say and would tell me stuff uh, that he wouldn't tell others, which is what you're always looking for when you're covering a team, right? You, You want guys that'll give you inside information that helps you stand out, you know, with the giants and the jets, you know, Curtis Martin was somebody that, um, I always enjoyed talking to Vinny Testaverdi. Uh, Phil Simms is one of my all-time favorite guys. Um, although I didn't have anything that you can consider to be a personal relationship with Eli because he just wasn't that way. He, he never said no to me when I wanted to talk to him, you know, on my own. And you, know, you always appreciate when somebody's cooperative. Justin Tuck uh, is like that Tiki Thinking if I have had some run-ins over the years, but we're good now. Uh, Strahan, kind of the same way. Uh, when they're in the when Strahan was in the mood to talk, he was the best interview in the league. Um, going back a little bit, I've always had a great relationship with Joe Montana, and um, he was very helpful to me with with the catch book. I know I'm leaving out a thousand guys here, but um, I, I've always there haven't been very many players I would say that I stayed away from because I just didn't like them. I mean, there are a handful of them, but uh, I, I I prided myself on on having a good relationship with players that they felt they can always trust me, and if something was off the record, it would stay off the record, but that they felt comfortable enough with me that they would open up with me to an extent that they wouldn't open up to other writers. Um, coaches, you know, I love covering Landry. I mean, he was just he was just the best, and and the thing I always tell people. If I went eight years in Dallas and I was writing a lot of controversial stuff and breaking a lot of stories. If I went eight years in Dallas without Landry ever getting mad at me, then I never really cared if another coach got mad at me because of Landry, who was right at the top of the all-time greatest coaches, um, didn't object to the things I was doing, which was always you know, just doing my job and trying to do it as professionally as possible. But... Like, I didn't care if another coach got upset with me because Tom Landry didn't. I don't know if that makes any sense, but like, right. where, where would this coach come off getting mad at me if Tom Landry right. never got mad at me? So,
2: if McAdoo got mad at you, like, compared to him. Compared <laughs> yeah, to him. <laughs> I don't
3: care. Um, yeah, but, no, there's a standard. And yeah. you are yeah. around some of these standards, period.
1: Well, I'll give you an example, Joe. I mean, Tom Coughlin and I have Syracuse in common but I must have written four times in his years as a Giants coach that he should be fired. And every time I wrote that, I truly believed it. And the first time was after the 06 season and he had lost the locker room. Uh, Eli was not developing like the Giants had hoped. Um, And a lot of players didn't want to play for him. And he kept his job because he promised John Mara that he would change. The Giants had said to him, we see how you are around your grandkids. Why can't we see any, that side of you at all around the players? Let them know that you care about them as people. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be such a hard ass. And that's how we kept it. Giants were ready to fire him if they didn't hear the right answers from him. So I know how close the Giants were to letting him go. So I never felt bad writing the column that he should be fired, but it, it did cause a lot of friction between Tom and I which um, was unfortunate, but it was, you know, whenever I write columns like that, it was never anything personal. I was just go, you know, as a columnist, you're paid for your opinions. And my opinion was that he wasn't the best coach for the giants at that point, because the players didn't want to play for him. And if the players aren't playing for you, then it's over. All credit to him for doing this incredible transformation and becoming a player's coach. Strahan hated him at the beginning and loved him at the end. I mean, so that that's not an easy thing to do. But, um, you know, so Tom got mad at me, you know, many times over the, how many years he was here, 11, 12 years. But honestly, if a player got mad at me, but I knew the standards I used to write a column and it was never writing a column a negative column about somebody who wasn't cooperative. Like a lot of people in this business have done. They take out their personal feelings on a player or a coach because they don't cooperate with them by ripping them in the paper. I never, ever did that. So I was always able to live my, with myself when I was critical because I knew I was writing it for the right reasons and not because, you know, I had any a, a personal agenda. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Tom within, a week or whatever, he'd forget what I wrote, and he he he'd be as nice to me as he as he was to anybody else. But that's one of the hazards of the business.
2: Yeah, I would say it comes along with the job description. Sometimes you're gonna you're gonna hurt people's feelings. It's 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 unavoidable. Yeah,
1: you know, it, listen. Uh, one thing I learned from Skip Ballas, who you're more familiar with him now for his television work, no. but he was at the Dallas Morning News when I got there. And he was very nice to me. He was very helpful to me. I was 27 years old, you know, working, walking, into, walking into a very difficult situation, covering the Cowboys with four games to go in the 1981 season. It's, hard, it's not an easy thing to do to pick up a team, you know, towards the end of the season. And Skip was great to me. But what I learned from him about writing columns is that you always want to leave somebody having an emotion at the end of it, whether they're mad or glad or sad. And those are always the words that he used. Um, You don't want them just saying, eh, what did he really have to say there? Or, you know, he didn't have an opinion or I don't really feel strongly one way or the other about what I just read. That's exactly what you don't want. So sometimes you're writing opinions that's going to piss people off. But you know what? As long as you can be true to yourself that's the way to do it. And, um, and I I felt like I learned that in an early age in this business from Skip.
2: It's good to hear that Skip was uh, very generous. Uh, I and mean, I guess, I guess it just, I think sometimes I guess people think he's nasty, but I think he's just putting on an act for television. He's
1: well, just you, you know what? Um, this, now, I haven't seen Skip. Oh, it's got to be at least, you know, 25 years. I haven't even spoke. I talked to him once or twice after I moved back from Dallas, but, uh, and he switched to the other paper in town after about a year that we worked together. But the skip that I occasionally see on TV, cause I don't watch that show. Uh, I can't, every now and then I'll see clips of it, you know, on Twitter or whatever. That That's not the skip that I knew. Um, you know, his cowboy fandom that comes out on TV, I'm going, that's the guy that was ripping Landry four times a week. You know, it's not the same guy. Though know, I don't know if he. I know he grew up in Oklahoma. Maybe he was a big cowboy fan growing up, and now because he's not covering them anymore, he can express how he feels about certain teams. I don't, I don't know what his motive is there, but that it, I never heard any of that stuff from him when I worked with him. I can tell you that.
2: Yeah, that. that I mean, I think it's for TV, so it's probably being produced, overly produced, but. Uh, you have covered a lot of great events. What was the most exciting Super Bowl you covered?
1: Um, boy, I'm going to give you a real cop out on this one because there's been a bunch that I really enjoyed. Um, the the uh, Giants Bills Super Bowl. Again, you guys are too young for this, but it was very patriotic, right? Because you know, right, the Gulf War had just started. and Whitney Houston's national anthem, and then. I happened to be on the field when Scott Norwood missed the potential winning field goal because it was the old Tampa stadium. It was hard to get down to the locker room. So I think I went down with like three minutes to go. Um, Cause I wanted to be in the locker room as soon as the game was over. And um, so I was standing on the giant sideline, but kind of at the opposite 20 from that field goal and was able to see as soon as the ball came off his foot that it was drifting to the right. I mean, that was just an incredibly uh, exciting game. It was so patriotic because of what was going on in the world. I mean, that was, that was a pretty cool game. The Giants Patriots game where they Patriots are going for the undefeated season. The David Tyree catch was a great game. Um, the Steelers and the Cardinals was a great game. Uh, that was Ben's, uh past the Santonio San Holmes right on the in the corner of the end zone. And then um the Seahawks Patriots, the uh oh, yeah. the interception happened. I was in the auxiliary press box for that game. And so I was just like in the corner of the end zone. And that happened in the end zone that was right in front of me. So I had a great view of that play and, and that was just wild. And then you know the Patriots coming down from 28 to three um yeah uh was was wild i remember my my son was at the game uh, on business um he's in his mid-20s now but so it was one of his first road trips for business and he went to the game and was he texted me at 28 to 3 he goes you know just my luck i've come to the worst super bowl ever and at the the <laughs> game, he writes me back this was the greatest game ever <laughs> <laughs>
2: Not, not a, a bad, of- not a bad first business trip. Well, oh. yeah, I
1: know. I'll tell you what, what was good for me in that game. I'll have to admit this. My my Brady Manning book was coming out. That game was in February of 2015. And my book was coming out in September of 2015. And I have to admit, it helped the book to have Brady win that game because he hadn't won a Super Bowl since the 04 season you know he'd lost twice to the giants since then and so it gave the book a little more not credibility but the fact that tom didn't lose that super bowl and now i'm writing about a guy who's lost three straight super bowls and hasn't won the game in a decade it it gave that book a little more oomph to it and then the next year so four months after the book came out manning wins the super bowl and what turned out to be the last game of his career. So um, that book, you know, generated a bunch of Super Bowls for Tom and one last one for Peyton.
3: Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely, it's a great point. Um, definitely came out at the, uh, the best time. Yeah. So you have, again, a very extensive career in writing and you have experience writing for newspaper and the industry is very slowly drying up. Uh, Everything is becoming uh, much more digitized and however you want to describe Mm -hmm. that Uh, you've written books. uh, And I mentioned at the very top, you've written elsewhere too. You've had stuff published in the athletic, you've had stuff published in sports illustrated. So, I I mean, your name has always been out there as one of the prominent, you know, NFL uh, go-to columnists uh, really everywhere. So, my, my last question to you is, because the industry has changed so much, especially here in the last 10 years, uh, what would be your best piece of advice to somebody uh, coming right out of college who is looking to do this? Because those graveyard shifts, not so much, they don't exist. I mean, they exist, yeah. but not so much anymore. Uh, it, it's very hard for somebody to get that job right out of school. Obviously, you're not going to be writing articles for The Athletic. You're certainly not going to be writing for Sports Illustrated, uh, ESPN. Uh, A lot of these other media companies have popped up. You see a lot of people going to places like The Ringer now with with Bill Simmons. and um, So now that the industry has changed and now that the the entry point for these jobs has kind of changed, what would be your best piece of advice for somebody coming out of college who wants to write for a living?
1: Yeah, I mean, my... I taught a class at Syracuse for a couple of years. And um, my advice to all my students were to, you know, be be as versatile as possible. That even if you want to go into TV, you should do the best you can to be a a good writer. Because a lot of times you just write your own stuff in television. Um, One thing that we haven't discussed is that for the first time, I did a podcast last season. It was called "The Goat Tom Brady," which was loosely based on my Brady Manning book, but it was really just all about Tom. And I had all the audio tapes that I saved from when I did the book, and so I told the story of Tom's career through an, um, a twelve-part, the twelve-episode podcast, and just kind of popped in these this audio here and there, which is something. Obviously as recent as five years ago, I never could imagine doing something like that. Um, so I would ha- I'd write every episode or about 2,500 to 3,000 words and then I had to go back and through my tapes and find the ones I wanted to use uh, and then send them to the producer to uh, get them in shape to use on the podcast. So that was in essence using skills that I had never, thought about or knew that I had in writing for a podcast is something I'd never done. But um, I, I think it's really important to, um, to be very open-minded when you're getting out of college on what your first job is. The most important thing is to get that first job, which isn't the easiest thing to do. And then once you get it, to build off of it. And if you if it's based on you sending out letters or emails, Or if you have a friend who's got a contact, never be, if if you have a contact that's willing to help you, never apologize for it because too often in this business or in any business, really, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But once, once you get that interview, once you get that first job, it's, it's what you know. And uh, somebody might've helped you opening a door, but they can't, you know, close the door behind you and make sure you stay you have to prove that you can do it. Um, So I would suggest, you know, using any tools possible to get that first job. And then your skill level will determine how far you go. But the first one is the hardest. And just to be open-minded about what your ultimate career goals might be versus what the first job has to be, because they don't always match up. Uh, it's, It's a tough business, but once you get going and, you, you get yourself in a place that you're comfortable. It really is a lot of fun. And the impact that you can have on on your your viewers, or your listeners, or, you know, your reading audience is, it's fun. It's always, to the last day that I worked at the Daily News, I still got a kick out of one of my stories being on the, on the back page and hearing them talk about it on the radio or riding the subway and seeing somebody read it on the train or now... And this has happened where people have been reading my books on an airplane. And it was, this happened a few years ago, in my Brady Manning book guys reading the book and he looks at the back, the, the jacket cover in the back and sees my picture and looks across the aisle at me and just kind of smiles. And I kind of look back and go, yeah, that, okay. And I, I mean, this, everybody's got an ego and it, it, those are kind of cool moments in this business that uh, when your work it's recognized and, um, you know, sometimes they'd be driving in the car and having no idea that they're about to rip apart a column, I guess, wrote, <laughs> which I never cared about. You know, if, if they're talking about it, they'll just get more people to read it. But, I mean, this is a fun business that you guys are finding out. And um, just can't be impatient with it that um, good things happen to people who are really good at this. And um, you just got to stick with it.
3: Absolutely, uh, certainly a lot of great stories, a lot of great um, nuggets here for people. Uh, I, I think it was great that you mentioned the goat there at the end because I think you know you considered a podcast, but you treated it as if you would an audiobook. and and I think uh, using it as an extension of the actual book that you wrote and you know describing that was really important here. But uh, we're going to let you go, Gary. Thank you for joining us. We really really appreciate it. Uh, there was a lot of stuff that you shared with us, and I'm sure. There's stuff that you would want to promote, uh, but unfortunately you couldn't. But if there's anything else that you can, uh, if there's anything else you could go, go ahead. You know, the floor is yours. You're more than welcome to. Uh, thanks again for doing this with us. You know, again,
1: we really appreciate it. Hey, Nick and Joe, I enjoyed it anytime.
3: All right. Thank you, Gary.
2: So everybody go out, uh, keep an eye out. Gary's got a new book coming out at some point, but The Catch, Coach and Confidential, Brady versus Manning, my first coach. And how about them cowboys are all available so go go buy those books so that's going to do it here for this episode of you know i'm right for our special guest gary myers for my co-host joe calabrese i'm nick durst and this has been you know i'm all right
0: covid 19 is still around but that doesn't mean the army rotc programs are not there for you Earn scholarships for school and pursue the career you want. The leadership-developing Army ROTC classes will give any full-time student the focus and resources that can open doors down the road. Start sharpening the skills that will carve out your future today. Learn how at goarmy.com ROTC. Army ROTC, now accepting college scholarship applications. Visit goarmy.com slash money for college.